This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, July 24th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. Attorney General Jeff Sessions has expanded civil forfeiture, ending restrictions on the practice that had been imposed in previous administrations. Forfeiture is a process by which the government takes property from people who have not been convicted of or are even charged necessarily with a crime. Cato's Clark Neely comments on the change. I always go back to previous attorneys general when it comes to civil asset forfeiture, because I can remember uh, Eric Holder, of course, uh, was, uh, at least in policy, somewhat more skeptical of uh, civil asset forfeiture uh, than previous attorneys general. Loretta Lynch, when she was being discussed and when she was testifying before the Senate, referred to forfeiture as a great tool, a wonderful tool, and drew no distinction whatsoever between criminal and civil asset forfeiture. And now we have Jefferson Beauregard Sessions III uh, as attorney general, and he is seeking to not only undo policies of uh, Holder's time in office, but also re-expand civil asset forfeiture. Yeah, so that's right. I mean, two, two points to start off with here that I think are really important. The first is to understand the difference between civil forfeiture and criminal forfeiture. A criminal forfeiture occurs after someone has been convicted of a crime, either in open court or through a plea bargain, and then the government proves that the property that they wish to seize was in fact either the proceeds of or related to those crimes in some way. That's criminal forfeiture and nobody really has a beef with that. Civil forfeiture is the real problem here. Civil forfeiture occurs when the police or other law enforcement seize your property simply by asserting that it is connected with crime and somehow but never actually proving it and in most cases never even charging the property owner with a crime. So civil forfeiture is much looser, very few procedural due process protections um, and not surprisingly, that's why law enforcement likes it so much. The other point I'd like to make is that I do not use the term civil asset forfeiture for the following reason. It, it, It tends to support the government's narrative that these are in fact assets cars that were used to distribute drugs or boats that were used to go pick them up or houses where the, the activity was centered. And in fact, that's a, that's a really false narrative. Um, many, many, many civil forfeitures are not of assets whatsoever. They're simply of cash. So for example, in Washington, D.C., according to a class action suit that was brought some years ago, the median amount of a cash forfeiture in Washington, D.C. was $120. In Philadelphia, $178. These are not assets. This is people's pocket money. So in states like uh, New Mexico, uh, Minnesota, and I believe a few other states have made some uh, gestures toward restricting the ability of the feds and local police to work together. What does this change in policy mean? So this is really important because most forfeitures do occur at the state level and there's been a massive tidal wave of reform in the states. 24 states have changed their laws to tighten up civil forfeiture and 14 states or I should say of those, 14 states have actually eliminated it. In 14 states including New Mexico and Minnesota, there is no more civil forfeiture. The police actually have to get a conviction before they can forfeit property. That's exactly how it should be uh, and civil forfeiture uh, raises besides extremely troubling policy considerations because of its perverse incentives and the way that it encourages policing for profit. Civil forfeiture raises extremely serious constitutional concerns as Justice Clarence Thomas pointed out in a recent uh, concurrence from a denial 
of certiorari in a case involving forfeiture, he wrote uh, a very short but powerful um, opinion in which he expressed his concern that it may well be that civil forfeiture uh, cannot be squared with the Constitution. I think he's exactly right about that. All right. So uh, adoptions are – it seems if you're concerned about having letting states have their prerogatives reign, that is if you're concerned about the problems of creeping federal government – encroaching upon the powers of state governments to make rules and uh, enforce those rules. Civil forfeiture is a problem, but this wider adoptions is a special problem. That's absolutely right. Um, Civil forfeiture as uh, exercised or as implemented by the federal government among its many, many problems also represents um, a a complete uh, disrespect of principles of federalism. Why is that? Well, the reason is that because um, when the, the, the federal forfeiture law enables the feds to work together with state and local governments um, and I should say actually state and local law enforcement to circumvent state-level policies about civil forfeiture. So take one of the states that I've named um, or any of the 14 states that have eliminated civil forfeiture as a matter of state policy. The uh, federal government can help state law enforcement officials circumvent that restriction simply by working together, uh, for example, in a joint task force so that the feds essentially uh, use federal law as a basis for forfeiture. But then through a program called equitable sharing, the federal government can then kick back up to 80 percent of the proceeds from a a civil forfeiture that's undertaken as a part of a joint uh, federal and local uh, task force. Then you also mentioned adoptions. Adoption is a particularly troubling federal program. It's the one that Eric Holder eliminated back in January of 2015 and that Jeff Sessions has just reinstituted. And um, what that policy involves is even when the feds and the locals are not working together, adoption enables a local law enforcement agency that uh, has the ability to see some some property but it wouldn't be permitted to do so under uh, state law because it would be a civil forfeiture. They can simply call in the feds. The feds will come in through adoption, seize that property ostensibly under federal forfeiture statutes and then again kick up to 80 percent of the proceeds back to the locals in direct contravention of state policy. Uh, This is an extraordinarily troubling and extraordinarily disrespectful policy when it comes to federalism and it's so unfortunate that uh, people like Jeff Sessions uh, extol federalism uh, in the abstract but then when it stands between them and a policy they wish wish to pursue, it goes right out the window which is in fact exactly what his uh, announcement uh, signifies, uh, his recent announcement. And uh, it's my understanding that kicking back that 80 percent when uh, a local police agency seizes property, they call in the feds to forfeit that property expecting that 80 percent comes back. The 80 percent that comes back, is it true that the string there are strings attached? That is, uh, the federal government says, look, this has to go right into the budget of this police agency. It can't be sent to the state capital for uh, a decision about what to do with it there. Yeah, that's right. And so actually, it's, it, let's be clear, it's not strings attached in the sense that there's some limits on what the state can do with it or that provides any meaningful oversight or transparency. It's, it's a further uh, perversion of state policy. So there are some states where civil forfeitures have to go into a general fund or even into an education fund as opposed to into a law enforcement fund. And of course, the point of that is to try to break some of these perverse incentives that we talked about earlier. One of the things that happens with the the federal equitable sharing program is the feds can direct the receiving law enforcement agency, the the agency that gets the 80 percent kickback um, to 
use that money only for law enforcement purposes, again, in yet another direct contravention and perversion of state policy and ultimately perversion of federalism. Um, federal uh, Civil forfeiture is a terrible policy across the board but the way it's implemented by the federal government is even worse uh, than, than just ordinary civil forfeiture. And I, I want to add something here. Um, we could literally spend the rest of the day talking about abuse after abuse after abuse. To take just one example, um, case that, that came up towards the end of my, my tenure at the Institute for Justice, uh, a, a manager of a Christian, Burmese Christian rock band was returning home in Dallas from, from a show. Um, he had $53,000 in cash that had been raised by this uh, Burmese Christian rock band for, for charitable purposes, including an orphanage back home. That money was seized in Muskogee, Oklahoma on the basis of absolutely no probable cause whatsoever, just a busted taillight. But they wanted the money, so they took it. And uh, it wasn't until IJ got involved and ultimately uh, handed the story over to the Washington Post where it went to number one on their website and that, that's what caused the money to be uh, given back to this innocent person. Um, there are going to be abuses like that with this program and Jeff Sessions is going to have 100 percent ownership of those abuses. When those abuses occur by the federal government, which they will, he will have ownership of those abuses. And when the abuses occur at the local level in an equitable sharing program that the federal government is participating in, Jeff Sessions will have ownership of those abuses. Civil forfeiture is terrible policy. It's uh, almost certainly unconstitutional. It leads to tremendous abuses. And I look forward to Jeff Sessions having complete 100 percent ownership of those abuses when they inevitably occur. Clark Neely is vice president for criminal justice at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 